Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Well, good morning. Welcome along to Gateway this morning. Um, The title of this series might make you wonder where on earth we are going to go. Fast food. What on earth does that have to do with justice? I'm going to let you muse on that subject for some time. I'm not going to answer it immediately. Um, My hope is that as we work our way into this series, some of those kinds of questions that you perhaps have uh, will become clear as the weeks unfold. What I want to do this morning by way of introducing you to the series is to remind you of a series that I did a couple of months ago that we called uh, One God, One Story, One People. Because the series that we're about to embark on is built on and is an extension of the series One God, One Story, One People. Um, So let me try and give you a Reader's Digest summary of some of the things that we covered in that series by way of sort of connecting into it and then leaning into our our subject. Um, I talked about the fact that the Bible is not a fragmentary collection of maxims, moralisms, and isolated, disconnected stories. I talked about the fact that the Bible is primarily a continuous coherent story of God's creation of and love for all that he's made. The cosmos in general and the people in particular. The people that he made to reflect his image to that cosmos. I talked about the fact that in the development of an identity, all of us are are storied into our identity. That is that we live in and out of the stories that we believe. Every culture and all people have stories. And the ultimate purpose of those large meta-narratives, those large stories, are an attempt to provide answers for the profound questions that every single human being grapples with. Like, why am I here? Who or whose am I? What's wrong with the world? How can it be fixed? Where is it heading? Where will it end? Stories that people and cultures have are an attempt to answer and come to terms with those questions. Now, I suggested to you that the Bible is a story, a meta-narrative that acknowledges those questions and gives answer to the deep primal questions of the human heart. I talked about the fact that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not different stories. They are, in fact, different acts in the one story and not unrelated stories. We talked about the fact that the overall story has been likened to sometimes a five or sometimes a six act play. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three is the election or, if you like, the calling of Abraham and his family, Israel, as the beginning of God's action to rescue and redeem what has been broken and lost by the fall. God intended to undo Adam's sin and the chaos that it caused by the calling of Abraham. N.T. Wright made the comment, he said, the choice of Abraham is a rescuing choice. One could say perhaps at this point in the story that God so loved the world that he sent Abraham. 
Now, the family of Abraham, as the story unfolds in what we call the Old Testament, largely failed in their mission and calling. Called to be different, they demanded to be the same. Give us a king to reign over us like the other nations. Called to be trusting and obedient, they were largely and for the most part disobedient and untrusting. Called to live among the nations for the sake of the nations, they largely lived for themselves at the expense of the nations. In Act 4, Jesus comes, the perfect Israelite, Abraham's son. He didn't come to start an entirely, completely unrelated story. He came as the fulfillment of the story to this point and as the foundation and lynch point of the story going forward. Paul said of Jesus that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. All of those things that God promised in, uh, uh, to Abraham and to Abraham's seed, while Abraham and Abraham's seed largely failed, this true Israelite did not. He came as the seed of Abraham, the son of David, and he succeeded where corporate Israel had failed so badly. He submitted where they rebelled. He obeyed where they disobeyed. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he didn't change the story. He fulfilled the story and then reorientated all of the great truths of the old story now redefined in him. So we talk, and, uh, and I talked about the one people of God. This is Act 5. The one people of God in the drama is where God's people and their mission are redefined in the Messiah Jesus. And I believe that the scriptures teach that God has one people, not two, as some dispensational scholars will argue, a heavenly people and an earthly people. I suggested to you that the Bible teaches there is one people. They're called by various names. Sometimes they're called the elect. Sometimes they're called Abraham's seed. Uh, in one occasion in Galatians that we'll just reference in a minute, they're called uh, the Israel of God. James refers to them as the 12 tribes. The family of Abraham is now no longer defined by physical descent or by the boundary marker of physical circumcision. The boundary marker is now faith in the Messiah. God's family, the ones through whom he plans to bless and put the world right, consist of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. As I say, called by Paul in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. And we as believers have now been narrated into the story of Israel. Their fathers are now our fathers. Paul says to the church at Corinthians, once you were ethnos, once you were not Jews, but now, he says, we've been narrated into that story. So the Bible says we are Abraham's seed, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, is according to the promise. So we have been narrated into this story by the grace of God through the Messiah. We are now an ongoing part of God's one story. We are his one people, blessed to be a blessing. Acts 6, if you like, of the play is the coming consummation where the story will be completed. God's mission will be realized. He'll create a new heavens and a new earth in which his people will dwell and the glory of God will cover that new heavens and new earth as the waters cover the sea, the Bible says. 
So we're presently then in Act 5 as Abraham's seed, blessed to be a blessing. And with that in mind, I want to take you to a passage in Genesis chapter 18 where God speaks some expectations to, to the people who are Abraham's seed. If we've been narrated into the story of Israel and Israel's story has become our story and Abraham's lineage is now our lineage, what does God expect of us? And this passage talks about it. It's Genesis 18, verses 18 and 19, and it reads like this. Abraham will indeed become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will find blessing through him. For I have known, or if you like, I've chosen him for the purpose that he will teach his sons and his household, and that's you and me, he will teach his sons and household after him so that they will keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice for the purpose that Yahweh will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him, that he will be a blessing to all the world and all the world will be blessed in him. Now, this is a crucial passage. Before we look into that passage, let me just give you the context of it. Genesis 18 is about judgment about to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah. This passage that I've just read is actually a divine soliloquy. For, for those of you who perhaps can remember studying English, a soliloquy is an act of speaking one's thoughts aloud when, by oneself. So, you know, in a play, sometimes an actor will come on by himself and he will speak his thoughts aloud and we call that a soliloquy. This is, in a way, God's soliloquy. He's on his way to act in judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he stops, as it were, and reminds himself of his ultimate purpose to bless the nations. It's as if, as he, it's, it's as if he can't do the one, that is judgment, without setting it in the context of the other, that is redemption. By the way, this is recorded for your benefit, for my benefit. It isn't meant to say that God suffers from a degree of dementia. And he goes around muttering to himself in order that he won't forget what he's about to do or supposed to do. You know, like when you go downstairs and you can't remember what you've gone downstairs for and you have to go back upstairs to remind you. So you don't do that, okay. All right. Neither does God, okay. Neither does God. So in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says that the outrage rose from those cities up before the presence of the Lord. The word outrage that's used there is a cry of pain from a people who have been violated and oppressed. It's a cry addressed for, uh, for help to authorities by the needy. They're saying, help us, and this cry has gone up before heaven. By the way, this story isn't just a historical uh, anomaly that, that really is of limited interest to you and I that doesn't reference you and I. That cry of the oppressed rising up from the earth before God is a frighteningly modern story. And Sodom is a model of the fallen world of all of the ages. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then again John in the book of Revelation all liken their world at their, at their time to the city of Sodom. Ezekiel said of Sodom, it's overproud, overfed, underconcerned, greedy, and sexually perverted. Very, very modern story. You and I live in the midst of a Sodom culture in the same way that Ezekiel, Isaiah, and John did, in the same way that Abraham, our father in the faith, did. 
This isn't just Abraham's context, it's your context, it's my context. And whatever else the story of our election will mean, I'll tell you one thing it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean escapism. We don't get to escape from the world. We are placed in the middle of it. I remember hearing a preacher one time talk about the passage in the book of Revelation where it says Satan falls from earth onto, uh, falls from heaven onto the earth. And he made the comment, he said, the good news is that Satan has fallen. The bad news is that we live where he's landed. We live in the midst of a Sodom culture. So in Genesis 18, here's this divine soliloquy going on. And in these verses, there are three clauses joined by two expressions of purpose. So he says, I have known and chosen Abraham for the purpose of walking in the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice for the purpose of all of the world being blessed as I have promised. So Abraham's seed, you and I, are to, we've, we've been elected, we've been chosen in order that we walk in the way of the Lord, as opposed to the way of Sodom that is our context. We walk in the way of the Lord, and he says, and that walk will look like righteousness and justice. Those two words, righteousness and justice, are used literally hundreds of times in the scripture, often placed together, and when they are placed together, they create a comprehensive phrase that we call a hendiadus. Now, a hendiadus in English language is a single complex idea that is too complex to be expressed by one word, so we take a couple of words to try and plumb the nuances of, of the idea. For example, we talk of law and order, we talk of health and safety, we talk of board and lodging. Those are an, examples of a hendiadus. It's really hard to get an English equivalent of righteousness and justice. The Hebrew words, um, perhaps social justice might be close, but even that fails to convey the Hebrew because those two words are too abstract. The Hebrew words are concrete nouns. They are something that you do. In the English, they're abstract nouns. They're something that you reflect on. They're concepts that you think about. When, when God says Abraham's seed will be marked by righteousness and justice, it won't be something they reflect on. It will be something that they embody. It's as if, as Abraham's children, these words are to describe our way of life. And if that's so, then it's a really good idea to say, well, what do those words mean? How do we unpack them, explain them? How do we embody them? Righteousness, you know, when we think of righteousness, we tend to use it as a very religiously flavored word. We tend to think immediately of personal piety, personal morality, having to do with sexual chastity and diligence and spiritual disciplines. And while it's not less than that, it's much more than that. The, the, the word really does mean something that's just perfectly straight, something that's fixed and fully everything that it should be. It's something that serves, if you like, as a norm against which other things can be measured. For example, the word is used to describe just weights and just measures, the, the, the norm against which things can be me measured. There is wound into the word a deeply relational aspect 
the idea of being righteous off by yourself is not really wound up in that Hebrew word. It's a highly relational concept that simply can't be reduced to personal piety. The word justice in its widest sense literally means to put things right, to intervene in situations that are wrong, oppressive, or out of control and fix them. You and I are called to walk in the way of the Lord that looks like righteousness and justice. Now, both those two words, righteousness and justice, presuppose something. They presuppose, actually, act two of our story, something in the world as it presently stands is wrong. It is neither righteous nor just. Something has gone wrong and things are not the way they ought to be. There's a film called Grand Canyon and in this film, Grand Canyon, there's a scene. And it involves an immigration attorney. He's in a traffic jam, he's going to a meeting, he's late, uh, he's frustrated by the traffic jam, so he pulls out of the, uh, off the freeway and attempts to bypass the, uh, the traffic jam by running through inner city streets. The streets in the movie get darker and darker and more and more isolated and ultimately, you know, the inevitable happens. His car stalls at a traffic light and he can't get it going. He manages to call a tow truck company, but before it arrives, he is surrounded by local thugs who are set to do him and his vehicle significant damage. Just in time, the tow, the tow driver arrives. He's an earnest, genial man. He manages to talk the thugs down, to hook up the attorney's vehicle, and then he takes the leader of the thugs aside and he says this to them. Man, the world isn't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, he says to the thug, but this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to do my job without asking you if I can, and this dude's supposed to sit in his car and wait without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. Not exactly a theologian's statement, but absolutely accurate in terms of the world that we live in. We know things aren't the way they ought to be. We look, and at every turn, we're greeted with stories of abused children, of sex trafficking, of political prisoners being put away without trial, of corrupt officials, of courtrooms where justice is flouted and where a guilty rich man goes free and an innocent poor man goes to jail. Stories in which spouses break their sacred promises, cheat and lie and tear families apart. We are surrounded if you like, by the culture of Sodom. Things are not the way it's supposed to be. Now, when things are the way it's supposed to be, the Hebrews referred to that as shalom. Now, most of you have probably heard the word before. We tend to imagine it's little more than kia ora, greeting. Hey, hey, mate. Or if at a push, we might say, oh, it means, it means peace. But again, the Hebrew phrase and idea is much deeper, much richer, much more foundational for our understanding of what righteousness and justice actually is. For if righteousness and justice have the idea of restoring something to the norm, then the norm that they are being restored to is what the Hebrews called shalom. Trying to illustrate shalom, if, if you imagine a beautiful, beautiful fabric 
Now that fabric consists of lots and lots of individual threads. It's not that threads individually make a fabric. If they are simply laid beside each other on a table, whether there's 300 or, or 300,000 threads, if you just simply lay them in proximity to one another on the table, you don't have a fabric. Proximity doesn't make fabric. They have to be interwoven over, under, through, and around each other. It's that interweaving that creates the fabric. That's, by the way, why I mentioned the fact that righteousness is a relational word. It's not an individualistic one. It's only through the delicate interrelationships of the threads that you create the beautiful fabric. Cornelius Plantinga says of Shalom, it is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in a relationship of equity, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, he says, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire ending hostilities. It means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's the way things ought to be. Now, sin has ruined shalom. Plantinga says sin is the culpable, is culpable shalom breaking. It, it vandalizes and destroys the fabric of the world that we live in at every level. Sin unravels shalom. Now, the calling of Abraham's family, that's you and me. The seed of Abraham. The call of Abraham's family is to be characterized by righteousness and justice. It's much more than a call to individual piety. It's the allowing of our lives to be interwoven with one another, working righteousness and justice, calling things back to a norm, working for shalom. As 21st century Western Christians, we have tended to reduce the calling of God to a personal relationship with God, going to heaven when we die, and perhaps encouraging other individual people to do the same thing. But that's not creating the fabric of shalom. Yes, we are called to individual salvation. Yes, ultimately we will spend eternity with, with the Lord. But, but individual threads, that's, that's falling far short of your calling and my calling. Righteousness and justice are our calling. And they are connected to something much larger than simply calling people to individual salvation. It includes that, but that doesn't exhaust God's plan. God's story, if you like, God's mission is to bring the whole of the cosmos back into this fabric, this interweaving of shalom. You can't read the New Testament without seeing that. Listen to what Paul writes to the Colossians. I'm reading it out of the message. So spacious is he, this is Jesus, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. It's not about one salvation. It's about everything. The mission of God is to restore everything to the norm of shalom, and it will require a people of righteousness and justice. Let's, let's go back again to Genesis 18 for a moment. Abraham will indeed become a great and mighty nation, and all of the nations of the earth will find blessing through him. For 
I have known and chosen him for the purpose that he will teach his sons and his household after him so that they will keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice. For the purpose that he, uh, Yahweh will bring about for Abraham all that he's promised him. Those verses join and bind together three vital concepts that have to do with you and me as Abraham's household. And those three concepts, I touched on them in the one God, one story, one people, are election, I have known, I have chosen Abraham. Secondly, ethics. Abraham and his family will be a certain kind of people. They will be people characterized by righteousness and justice. And the third is mission. So that they might be a blessing to the world and be the agents by which I usher in shalom. As you look at those three words, I'm not trying to be smart, but ethics stands as the midterm between election and mission. Ethics, that is who you are, who we are as a people of character, is the purpose of the former and the basis of the latter. The ethical quality of the life of God's people is the vital link between calling and missions. If you take that out, or if that is compromised, then there can be no effective biblical mission. There can be no effective biblical mission without biblical ethics. Listen, people who are bad news cannot, with any credibility, talk about good news. The people of God are called to live on a very open stage. There is nothing cloistered or closeted about God's people. We are not about some cozy, esoteric people and behavior in an in-house group with accountability only to ourselves. For good or for ill, we are visible for, to the nations. We have been placed among the nations. Either faithful or unfaithful, the people of God are an open book to the world, and the world will always ask questions and draw conclusions. God's election was and is, through his people, intended to produce a community committed to the ethical reflection of God's character in the earth, summed up by these two words, righteousness and justice. And God's mission and success in the world, may I say it that way, is predicated on such a community of righteousness and justice actually existing. Christopher Wright says this, the community God seeks for the sake of his mission is to be a community shaped by his own ethical character with specific attention to righteousness and justice in a world filled with oppression and injustice. Only such a community can be a blessing to the nations. In case you remain unconvinced, and I understand when people start talking about justice, all kinds of issues rise in our hearts. And we'll address some of those as we go along. Uh, maybe just I can say this one thing kind of in preparation. A lot of people in our stream, in the evangelical stream, say, you know what, Don, the liberals tried that in the 20th century. They talked a lot about justice, about setting the world right. And they poured their efforts into setting the world right, and they lost the gospel. And so as a reaction to that, the evangelical, more fundamental dimensions of Christianity, we preached an individualistic gospel. And I've had people say to me, what's the point of feeding people and not preaching the gospel to them? They just go to hell on a full stomach. And I'm thinking, I think the gospel was supposed to be both. 
It's not a matter of that or that. It's supposed to be both. I'll, I'll never forget when we started the meal some 14 years ago. We had people leave this church because I said, you are not standing up and giving them a sermon while they're eating their meal. They said, look, we've got the perfect opportunity to share the gospel with them. I said, we said it would be a free meal. And you're now putting strings on it and you're not gonna do it here. And they said, you don't care about the gospel. What's the point of feeding them? They're all going to hell. I said, listen, if you want to preach the gospel, then you come, live among them, eat with them, and you may get the opportunity to share one-on-one with, one one with them if they open their hearts to you. But you are not holding them captive. That's not what we're doing it for. Some of you may think, well, I'm with them. Well, I, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> Never was and will not be. Because I believe we're called to be both We're supposed to embody the message. And once we've embodied the message, then people are going to ask us. And opportunity will be there for us to speak. So I understand the hesitancy when we start talking about righteousness and justice. Because people are frightened that we'll go that way and lose the gospel. That isn't losing the gospel. It's embodying the gospel without losing that part of it. Listen, if you're not convinced, let me conclude by drawing your attention to an incredibly well-known passage in the book of Micah. It says this, he has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's the King James Version. You're not reading the King James Version. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what He desires of you to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with the Lord. To do justice places an emphasis on the way we live our lives. To love mercy places an emphasis on the motive or the attitude behind the justice that we do. I'll I'll unpack this as we go, but one of the things I want to just say to you, I'm not talking about programs that we're going to initiate though that may happen too, I don't know. I'm talking about something we're called to be that will result in what we do. I'm not just calling you to programs. I'm talking about who we are supposed to be deep in the inside and that the things that we do will be a reflection of of who we are. As I was planning this series a few weeks ago, I had a dream. I don't recall all the details of the dream. All I remember is that several times in the dream, a voice spoke to me and said, read Zechariah chapter seven, verse nine. Read Zechariah chapter seven, verse nine. Read Zechariah chapter seven, verse nine. I woke up, I went down, I read Zechariah chapter seven, verse nine. And I was stunned. Because I have to say to you that as the series was percolating, I was worried about this whole idea of, God, I don't want to get into, you know, winding people up to do things. You know, how are we going to do this? We're going to do that, you know. And I I was struggling with this idea of it's got to come out of who we are. How do I do this series in a way that people will not feel burdened and and loaded up with guilt that they've got to rush out and do things, but that something will rise up from within that's called righteousness and justice. And I was grappling with it to the point that I'm thinking, shall I do this? 
Well, I went down and read Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9, and this is how it goes, with a verse on either side. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. I said, Lord, I'll do the series. I'll do it. And so this next few weeks is a response to this. I think the Lord is saying, I want a community of people, Abraham's sons, who will in the midst of a Sodom-like culture walk in the way of the Lord as opposed to the way of Sodom. And if you're wondering what walking in the way of the Lord looks like, it looks like righteousness and justice. All of us, I'm assuming, here this morning, would say, if we were asked, do you want to please the Lord? We would say, of course I do. Of course I do. It's why I'm here. What does pleasing the Lord look like? He hath shown thee, O oh man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Over the next few weeks, we're going to try and unpack that. So um, please get your ears on. Um, I, I've, if you come to Gateway, you know that I very rarely say something like I just said. I very rarely say, you know what? The Lord told me to do this. I, I can't remember the last time I did that. I do not do that deliberately. Because I've been in churches like you have where pretty much every Sunday, you know, a pastor or my pastor used to say, God gave me this. And at the end of it, I, I, I want to say, you know, I think he was throwing that in the rubbish bin and you caught it. You know, uh, you know you, you've all heard people, God gave me this song. And you think, no, he didn't. He's better than, he's better than that, you know. And so I very, very rarely say things like I just said. But, but when the Lord does say it to me, I'm not frightened of saying it either. I think he's interested in creating a people who will rightly reflect him to a world that's bound in unrighteousness and injustice, and that somehow we would hold up a standard, not, not uh, pharisaically or self-righteously, but coming from deep within, there is a people that he's made on the earth that reflect who he is a God who is righteous and just. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.